Welcome to the weekly podcast at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church. My name is Doc Hollingsworth. I'm senior pastor of this great congregation, and we're delighted that you've joined us. Our prayer for you is that as you listen to this message, you might feel closer to God and closer to God's hope for you. Luke 17, 1 through 10, page 852 in your pew Bible. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, then you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table. Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. As I was preparing for, uh, to share with you this this week, um, I looked at today's lectionary text, um, and it included verses 5 through 10. It starts with the disciples' request for more faith. But as I read and studied um, in preparation for worship today, I was convinced the first four verses matter. Um, And I appreciate Katie reading, they do, right? It's it's an arduous task that uh, Jesus is talking about before this response of the disciples. Give us more faith. And so as we prepare, I also want us to remind where we are. We've got to plant our feet in the story arc that Luke has provided here. Um, We've got to figure out where we are, where our feet are planted in the text. Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. He's been headed that way for a few chapters. And he's been busy all along the way, healing, um, teaching as he's traveled. Traveling with him are disciples, apostles. He shares meals with Pharisees. And Luke sometimes distinguishes the difference between a disciple and an apostle. But nevertheless, crowds gather, people seek healing, and challengers seek answers. Um, Luke continually makes it clear, though, through the balance of the scripture, what the destination is. Jerusalem. We all know what faces Jesus in Jerusalem. And so this journey is on the way. 
Luke, all along the way, is leaving literary signposts, if you want to call them, uh, about this long shadow of the cross that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem, reminding us, the reader, um, about this intentional turn toward Jerusalem. Our passage is framed by two important stories. On one side is this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Doc worked on that last week. If you remember where he landed, it was challenging. It was action. It was a call to action. And Doc's reminder is an important one for us to remember as we wade in to this text. Then on the other side of what we are considering today is the story of the ten lepers. We've got the Samaritan leper, all ten were healed, but the Samaritan leper is the only one who returns to what? Thank Jesus. And Jesus pronounces, your faith has made you well. This is important framework. Now that we're we're cognizant of where we are, where we find ourselves, I think it's important for us to turn to the text. It constitutes the second half of A four-part series, loosely connected teachings related to discipleship. They could be summarized like this. Don't be the cause of another sin. Don't be a stumbling block. You read what Katie said, what Scripture said about stumbling blocks, right? You'll get thrown in to the water with a millstone around your neck. So don't be the cause of another sin. Don't be a stumbling block. Forgive and forgive and forgive on the same day. Forgive. Minuscule faith is sufficient. It is enough. And discipleship isn't about reward. Just do it. These challenging commands, maybe even impossible ones, then and now. So let's think a little bit about each one. Don't be the cause of another's sin. Don't be a stumbling block. It's a sobering thought to recognize that we have the capacity to stand in another's way. To be a stumbling block, even when it's not something that's intended. I've got some friends who have been described. They've, um, they have a new minister in a church where I have some friends, and Uh, He's been described as the most kind and gentle person. These people have tried to goad him into being a stumbling block, to being unkind. They can't do it. They're like, we don't know what this guy's made of, but he's pretty nice. I heard Heather Webb described like that by Doc. And so you've experienced, this congregation has experienced that kind of that pure spirit, that kind spirit that isn't a stumbling block. I can be the opposite a lot. (laughs) The second thing, forgive again. It's hard enough to forgive even once, but seven times in a single day, uh, it seems absurd. No wonder the apostles asked Jesus for this transfusion of faith. Add faith to us, literally, is what the Greek says. 
But then Jesus moves on and talks about this mustard seed. It, it, it pops up again that minuscule faith is sufficient. The word faith here in Greek is pistis. It could also be translated as trust, commitment, confidence. And when it comes to faith, Jesus suggests that the size of a person's faith is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Even a seed of faith, a minuscule amount, holds the power, tree-like power, potential kinetic energy. Jesus' followers can live and act on the basis of whatever faith is theirs, no matter how small or insignificant it might be or it might seem in the moment. But it's clear that Jesus thinks it's time for them to do it, to do something about it. This image of the mustard seed has already been rolled out in Luke 13, verse 19, comparing the immeasurable kingdom and reign of God to a mustard seed in the way it expands. Now, I'm not a stickler for grammar, but I think it is important for us to think as we work through verse 6, it's important to realize uh, some uh, commentaries note that the grammar of Jesus' uh, response to the apostles, especially the request in Luke 17, verse 6, presents difficulties in translation. And what I mean by that it's, is it's a mixed conditional sentence. The if clause, you know, the if-then clauses have to match. My teacher wife usually edits all my sermons and fixes all those things. She didn't have time on this one, so bear with me, right? These if-then clauses usually need to match. The if clause that we have in verse 6 here is a simple condition. And we're going to assume that it's true for the sake of uh, our, our work today. If the size, if, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then, right? But the then clause suggests this contrary to fact condition. This mulberry tree being flung into the ocean, jumping, as it were, into the ocean. And the textual translation clues help the reader to realize this isn't necessarily a wooden promise that faith, faith produces this crazy action, but it's an illustration Christ uses about the power of faith. It has cosmic energy, energy we don't understand, energy that doesn't make two clauses that need to match make sense. They don't, it doesn't line up. Jesus issues some heavy requirements. And um, these requirements are for discipleship. He warns against these little ones causing them to stumble. He emphasizes the need to rebuke fellow followers that falter while offering forgiveness, radical forgiveness, over and over and over. And it's worth noting that he's already dealt with with this, these difficult and life-altering demands that discipleship, that get in the way of discipleship. If you think about it, in Luke 14, verses 25 through 33, he challenges family norms. 
He talks about carrying the cross and giving up everything to follow him. This is countercultural stuff. And it makes these verses in Luke 17 a not so subtle reminder of what he's already taught. Now, mulberry trees don't routinely replant themselves in a sea or elsewhere, suggesting that most Jesus followers have faith even smaller than a mustard seed. So, is Jesus chastising this gathered group, these apostles, these disciples, for this complete lack of faith? Or rather, is he encouraging them not to worry about it? Not to worry about how much faith they have, this measurable thing. Jesus' loaded response to the disciples' request for more faith, telling them all's required is an infinitesimal amount, tells us that they're asking the wrong question. They're asking for the wrong thing. But what's wrong with wanting a little more faith (laughs) to meet an urgent call of their fearless leader toward discipleship? The last idea, discipleship is not about reward. It's a calling to just act, to just do it. Having constant faith and living living out a life of discipleship is hard. It's countercultural. Sometimes I think it's uh, of it like a a quarter-mile track. Now, I've got a doctor's note that I don't ever have to run because I had knee surgery probably six years ago, and Charlie May in Rome, Georgia said, do not run, okay? Elliptical, ride a bike, do not run. So I don't run around a track, but I've seen a quarter-mile loop, right? You have too. Where's the finish line? On a quarter-mile loop, where's the finish line? Well, it's at the end, but it's, it's right where the start is, isn't it, Glenn? It's right where the starting blocks are. The finish line is right where the starting blocks are. And so discipleship is this trip around a quarter-mile track where you, it seems like you find yourself in the same spot all the time. Almost like you're back at the start No matter how many times we run the loop, we end up in the same place. And Jesus is talking to the disciples and letting them know that while he understands how hard this life is, this life of discipleship, this calling they have on themselves, it's only the starting line. This call to forgiveness and a changed life shouldn't be too much to expect. Um. I struggled with a good image here. There's a comedian that I want to talk about, but I'm not going to talk about it from the pulpit. But it's, it's almost like this, this realization that we think we've done, accomplished this really big thing, right? We think, man, we've accomplished so much because we have faith, because we've lived into a life of discipleship. And Jesus says, hey, buddy, you're just getting started. You know, do you want a pat on the back for this? This is a life well lived. All along there are things that trip us up, that cause us to sin. This call to help others repent, this call to forgiveness, is a call that Christ reminds uh, us and is afforded to us as well. 
right? Even if our neighbor messes up and does it over and over again, it's our call to forgive. When we forgive, though, we don't need to think we get this special spot in heaven. God desires that we love one another and forgive one another as we have already been forgiven. Accountability and forgiveness are tied together, and they're very important. This challenge that Christ brings, it's a beautiful move toward building community, I think. It's not about shame or putting people in their place. It's an invitation back into life together. An invitation back into community, no matter what. It's also a reminder that any amount of faith can make that impossible move happen. Even if it's easier to get a tree planted in the sea than to forgive someone. Now, at this point, I want to have a parenthetical comment here. We've got to heighten our senses to verses 7 through 10. And not just glance over them. We've, we've got something worth being aware of. Both NIV and the contemporary English uh, translations use the word servant. The NRSV uses the word slave. And um, these verses have been used as textual proof through decades that, that back up uh, slavery. It was used to tell slaves, even women, to stay in their lane, to see a life of servitude as to to me, your servitude to me is scriptural, right? But I want to clearly say that that reading is both abusive and doesn't come close to what Christ was pointing to. One thing to recognize is although the transatlantic slave trade is has nothing to do with slavery in Jesus' day, that this text here isn't transitive. It doesn't have that property that you can just say the same thing about both. Either way, the text does not give anyone the right to tell another person to be content with their lot in life, to not complain about their situation, to shut up and do as they're told. Instead, This image of slave or servant is a calling, and it's calling all of Christ's disciples towards choosing service, towards consciously being a servant to others. I, I am a revisionist history fan. If you don't know Malcolm Gladwell, get to know him. It's a podcast uh, and uh, the, the, the latest episode that has just hit, he's, he's talking about experiments this season. There's a lot of background I can't get to. The gist of it is he's, he's uh, using the idea that, um, that what if we could uh, pull off any experiment we wanted to? Ethics don't matter. Uh, death and dismemberment don't matter. You know, what would we do? What could we, what kind of... Uh, experiments could we set up and one of the things that he did talk about was in the 1940s some conscientious objectors signed up for um, a starvation study was what it was and because they had decided that they could not uh, on their conscience go and fight in the war they signed up knowing exactly what was headed toward them 
uh, for the betterment of society. And, and, there, and, and in the episode, he's arguing this, the ethics. He's like, medical ethicists say there's no way in the world. You know, there was pressure, right, for these men who had not gone to war, who were being mistreated by normal society and saying, you guys are losers because you aren't over there, right? Um, it was their way to contribute in a way that made a difference in how we understand rations, how we understand nutrition. It was the start of a, of a movement. And I think this, this, this differentiating piece for me as it relates to where we are today is these men made a choice, right? They chose service, consciously directed being a servant to others, full-throated choice to change the narrative and the future with what they did, the choices they made. Having faith means that we must enter into the struggle of forgiveness, and this attitude of service should pro- proliferate. It should surround everything we do. What Jesus is directing here is only the starting place, though. It's the bare minimum of what disciples are called to. Faith, forgiveness, and service to one another. But let's face it, folks, living this out is difficult. Faith isn't some divine, measurable commodity that we can store up for later. It's not something we can trade for divine attention or even use to barter for a miracle. Faith is hard fought. It's hard to acquire And it's miraculous, but it's not a commodity. That's why our communal life is so important. Our life together. We have been given a living relationship through Christ. An opportunity to live in community, serving our risen Savior and serving one another along the way. It should help us remember through faith to forgive and serve, reflecting the abundant love and forgiveness we enjoy because of our Christ-centered relationships. As disciples, even when it's hard, we've got to keep one thing in focus. As Rachel Held Evans says, the truth that the signs and wonders of Jesus never cease. The 150 plus gallons of wine at Cana point to a generous God, a God who never runs out of holy things. This is the God who, much to the chagrin of of Jonah, saved the rebellious city of Nineveh, the God who turned five loaves of bread and a couple of fish into a lunch to feed 5,000 with baskets left over to spare. This God is like a vineyard manager who pays a full day's wage for just one hour of work. Or like a shepherd who leaves his flock in search of a single lamb. Or like a father who welcomes his prodigal son home with a robe, a ring, and a feast. We have the choice every day to join in revelry, to imbibe the sweet wine of undeserved grace, or... We could pout like Jonah. We could argue fairness like the vineyard employees. 
We could resent our own family like the prodigal's older brother. At its best, the church administers communion, the sacraments, by feeding, healing, forgiving, comforting, and welcoming home the people God loves. At its worst, the church withholds the sacraments in an attempt to lock God in a theology, a list of rules, a doctrinal statement, even a building. But our God is in the business of transforming ordinary things into holy things. Scraps of food into feasts and empty purification vessels into fountains of wine. This God knows his way around the world, so there's no need to worry about how much faith we have. There's no need to fear. There's always enough. Just taste and see. There's always and ever enough. Because we believe that God, that with God, there's enough, even with only a sliver of our own faith, we're invited to the table this morning. And as we gather around the table, there are a couple of instructions that we need to know. The communion preparation group has prepared cups. There's a set of cups. We're going to pass the plate once. And so as the deacons uh, come down your aisle and as you take uh, one set of cups, realize there's both bread and juice in there. Uh, You'll be prepared uh, for the table as we share the meal together. So will you pray with me as we enter into communion? God of abundance, take our sliver of faith and make it enough. Call us towards forgiveness again today so that we might serve one another first and love you with our whole hearts, but also our hands and our feet. We ask your blessings on this meal, the sacramental reminder of the way Jesus poured himself out for the world May these elements be our reminder of the importance of relationship, and may that reminder give us strength for what's ahead. We pray all of this in the transforming name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, Come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Ponstelian Baptist Church.